Hello and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. Arab Digest is something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. Our daily newsletter has no sponsors and we carry our podcasts without any advertising. It is our readers who support Arab Digest and we intend to keep it that way. To find out how you can support a truly independent voice in the Middle East and North Africa, head to ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive our reader-supported daily newsletter for two months for free. That's right, two months for free. In this world of information overload in which we all find ourselves, Arab Digest keeps it simple. With one article a day and the weekly podcast, we provide unique coverage of the Middle East and North Africa, featuring the very best experts, analysts, writers, and commentators. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources, and no overload. My guest today is the Middle East analyst and Syria specialist Malik Al-Abda. He's a co-founder of SIT, Syria in Transition, a monthly online delve into policy-relevant developments concerning the Syrian conflict, which you can find at syriaintransition.com. I recommend it highly. Malik, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. Before we get on to the Gaza war and how Bashir al-Assad has assumed what, what you've called, a, and I think very well, a position of negative neutrality in that war, can you just lay out for our listeners how today's Syria has become, well, effectively balkanized into several spheres? I mean, Syria today, and for the, for the past 12 or 13 years, has experienced a, an internationalized civil war. So this is not just a civil war between... Syrian combatants, but these are Syrian combatants, combatants who are supported by, by big powers. And in some cases, those big powers have decided to intervene directly in Syria, uh, working with the, their proxies on, on the ground. And the result of this has been uh, Syria being divided into a patchwork of three to four areas, depending how you define them. Uh, three to four areas of control. Each area is controlled by a great power and run on the ground by its local proxy, its local allies. So yes, you can see it as being uh, balkanized, although I suppose unlike the, the, the Balkans, the, the divide, ethnic and, and sectarian divide in Syria, isn't uh, as black and white as it was in the former Yugoslavia. But nevertheless, yes, the country is in a state of de facto division. And in my opinion, it's slowly drifting to, to partition. And can you just give us a, a word picture, if you will, of, of the country itself, these, these divisions, these three or four divisions? What does it look like? Well, the largest chunk, about 60% of territorial Syria, perhaps 50% of the pre-war population, is controlled by the Assad regime, and it's supported by Iran and Russia. Uh, the Russians, of course, have their main base in uh, along the Syrian coast, and the Iranians have various areas of uh, of influence where they have particularly strong military presence. Eastern Syria, Deir Zor, for example, south of uh, the capital Damascus, they have the the. The areas where they have a particularly strong, where their militias, uh, the IRGC militias, of course, some of them who were, were involved in the attacks against U.S. forces recently, uh, they have areas where they have particularly strong control, more so than than the Assad regime does. 
Then you have the, the SDF, Syrian Democratic Forces. These are the uh, YPG-dominated uh, force that fought Islamic State with the help of the United States. This is a Kurdish majority force, although there, there is a, uh, many Arabs who are fighting uh, within the SDF. But it's it's the the, the YPG-dominated uh, military, which is a Kurdish force, affiliated to or linked to the PKK. PKK, that's the Kurdish militia deemed a terrorist organization by the Turks. And that controls about 30% of territorial Syria and roughly around 15% of the population. And then you have the, the, the Syrian opposition. These are mostly Sunni Arab groups that had fought Assad from day one. They've been defeated in many areas, including southern Syria and uh, central Syria. And their final refuge now is northern Syria and northwest Syria. This is Idlib, of course, but also northern Aleppo province and basically areas along the border with Turkey. And of course, they are supported primarily by by Turkey. Turkey has around 30,000 troops in that area to protect against uh, mainly regime and PKK attacks. But the U.S. also has ground forces. The Russians have ground forces and the Iranians have ground forces. So uh, Syria is is very much divided between those powers. Mm. Yeah, and it's interesting too. I, mean, I, I think the, the, the sense that people have mm. is that the war is frozen right now. But in fact, there is still a lot of military action going on. Am I correct in that regard? Well, it's, I mean, I would agree with the, the frozen conflict uh, description in the sense that the front lines haven't really changed all that much since March 2020. That was the last time there were major, uh, uh, the front lines have shifted. And since then, oh, yes, there has been shelling, bombing, bombing by, uh, by Russia and uh, Assad's Air Force. And, you know, the occasional uh, clashes, uh, sniping. Uh, but the front lines haven't shifted. And and as I understand it, the Israelis have been hitting various sites in Syria. The U.S. bases have come under attack from some of these uh, Iranian-backed militias. What about ISIS, the Islamic State? Is it still a major factor in Syria? Yes, it is. Uh, and this is probably uh, an unw- unwelcome uh, surprise to many people. But ISIS is very much alive in Syria. It's particularly active in uh, the Syrian desert. So this is the area east of uh, the city of Palmyra, between Palmyra and Deir Zor. Uh, it's, an, it's, it's an expanse of desert uh, in Arabic. It's called the Badia, and they are they are still there. Uh, they are hiding out in uh, mountains in um, in the, the huge expanse of desert, and they are carrying out. I would say almost daily, uh, hit-and-run attacks against regime forces and uh, Iranian militias. And it's, it's, it's a big problem because the, as far as the regime is concerned, there is a steady uh, stream of body bags, and a lot of it is coming from that specific uh, area. Mm. So Assad forces are taking a lot of casualties. And, and of course, there are those uh, camps that have been set up that are guarded by the SDF. Um, some people say these are just breeding grounds for more ISIS fighters. Yeah, these are the camps uh, controlled by the SDF. I mean, this is a, an intractable 
issue. How do you deal with these people? Is there a way to de-radicalize them? And there have been attempts to do that. It's a real, it's a, it's a very, it's a very uh, difficult situation. But also, these camps are also a a card in the hand of the SDF, in the sense that uh, should the SDF collapse, then thousands of ISIS fighters will be let loose, uh, and that will be disaster for everyone. Okay, well, I thank you for setting the stage for us, Malik. It's without doubt a grim stage. But let us move on now to the Gaza war, another grim scenario. How is Bashar al-Assad using the war to buttress his position, or what you refer to as uh, his stance of negative neutrality? Yeah, I mean, from the outset, uh, let's just you know say this. Assad uh, doesn't really have uh, much love for Hamas. And he's, in the past, he said pretty uh, nasty things about them. Because Hamas's position on Assad hasn't always been consistent. In the beginning of the Syrian uprising, 2011, 2012, uh, until quite recently, actually, they were uh, initially quite supportive of uh, armed opposition groups. They even trained some armed opposition groups in in northern Syria. And their position was somewhat ambivalent. And uh, there was a lot of sympathy within Hamas rank and file for for the Syrian revolution. That position shifted as Assad gained more ground and he appeared to be the the, the winner of that war. Uh, and they recently uh, normalized relations with Assad. However, Assad hasn't forgiven Hamas for its perceived treachery. And, uh, and so therefore, I don't, I, I, personally, I think that probably Assad is quite privately, probably quite gleeful at the way that the way that Israel is degrading Hamas's military uh, capability. But that's a side issue or let's say side note. What there has been in Syria is no solidarity with Gaza, at, at least nothing public. There have been no demonstrations in Damascus uh, in solidarity with, with Gaza. Which is rather strange because Syria is part of the resistance axis and you would assume that at least vocal solidarity would be forthcoming, but it hasn't. And instead, there have been demonstrations uh, in solidarity with Gaza in places like Idlib. So that's the irony. So that's the first thing. There's been no vocal solidarity. On the military side, there have been a few, let's say, badly aimed rockets and mortar rounds landing in empty fields in uh, the occupied Golan Heights. But nothing more, and there have been, you know, rumors, and, and and probably nothing more than rumors at this stage, that Assad may have even passed on intelligence about the IRGC in Syria to Israel, in return for Israel, uh, let's say, not targeting the Assad regime, and again, this is widely speculated, even Iranian press have have, have uh, suggested that this might be the case, and especially in relation to the most recent uh, assassination of high-ranking IRGC uh, commanders in Damascus. Let me just step in there, Malik. Have I got this right, that Assad supplied the coordinates to the Israelis that took out this IRGC intelligence unit uh, in Damascus? That's what's being rumored, yes. Um, I mean, obviously, there's probably no way that anyone can definitively uh, 
attest to that. But it's not the first time. Uh, and there have been historic cases where, for example, Imad Maghniya, the famous Hezbollah commander, who was also assassinated in Damascus in quite suspicious circumstances. And it is widely believed in certain circles that the Assad regime at the time did cooperate with Israel in return for easing of, of sanctions and rehabilitating Assad post-Hariri assassination. So there's the idea that Assad might be covertly cooperating with Israel to achieve certain goals, uh, mainly related to his own survival, is not, is not an outlandish idea or an idea that uh, can be easily dismissed. There are historical precedents for this. Well, that's a, an intriguing thought to add to what is already a pretty devious and complicated equation. And as you say, Israel does have form. And presumably the reason why there are no protests in support of the Palestinians in, in Damascus is because the people might be very supportive, but if they were to protest and they'd feel a full weight of the reprisals from the regime, would that be right, Malik? Well, I mean, in in uh, in, in regime areas, you just can't organize a protest without it without it being officially sanctioned. That would just be suicidal to actually spontaneously decide to do a protest. So this, if the protest is going to happen, it has to be organized by either the Ba'ath Party or some kind of pro-regime uh, labor union or student association or something like this. And so you, you just you just cannot organize a spontaneous protest in solidarity with Gaza in regime areas. That's just not possible. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and Syrian Transitions, Malik Al-Abda. The Digest is a truly independent voice on the Middle East and North Africa. No advertising and no sponsors. In the information overload world in which we all find ourselves, Arab Digest keeps it simple. One article a day and the weekly podcast from top experts, analysts, writers, and commentators. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources, and no overload. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, be sure and look out for the offer of a free two-month trial to our reader-supported daily newsletter. You know, I'm just thinking back to the uh, that terrible earthquake of last year and how <clears throat> Assad was able to, well, weaponize it to further legitimize his regime. All the aid had to go through Damascus. In this situation, Assad is, is, is rather lining up with the West. I mean, the Western governments, I mean, you could say that they are even more pro-Israel than Assad, but he's playing this game fairly adroitly. How is Europe responding to his ploy of negative neutrality? Look, Assad, the main aim of, of Assad is, is to survive. And the biggest challenge that he confronts is uh, the bankruptcy of his regime. Syria just doesn't have money. I mean, it's, it, it owes Iran about $50 billion dollars probably owes Russia a similar amount. So Assad faces a huge financial, uh, huge financial difficulties. And only Europe has the money that could uh, sustain him. I mean, in many ways, he's already been sustained by the UN, which is, to a great extent, is funded by, by Europe. The UN spends billions of dollars every year in Syria. 
on humanitarian assistance, which keeps the regime of uh, 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 helps civilians, but also it removes the onus on the regime to feed its own people. So Assad has benefited from um, from the UN, which is funded by to to a great extent by Europe. Now Assad wants money. He wants even more money from from Europe, and not just food boxes and you know the conventional humanitarian assistance, tents, that sort of stuff. But he wants Europe to fund Syria's reconstruction because the way that he sees it, the way that people in the regime see it, Europe is complicit in the destruction of Syria because it supported these armed opposition groups or at least encouraged many of them. And now it needs to uh, make up for its mistake by rebuilding Syria. So Assad wants, wants money and he sees the Gaza conflict as a way of he wants to leverage the Gaza conflict in order to get more money from from the Europeans and so his position of uh, negative neutrality is in part aimed at that and many people in Europe well certain governments anyway appear to appreciate the position of Assad of negative uh, negative neutrality and are open to rewarding him uh, not necessarily overtly but perhaps covertly, perhaps via the UN or via certain Gulf regimes, for his position on, on Gaza. That, that appears to be the, the, the game plan, and it, it might be working. So just to recap, Malik, and I want to make sure that I've got this straight, Assad is backed by Iran, who backs Hamas as part of its axis of resistance, but Assad doesn't want to, nor can he afford to show support for Hamas, in part because, as you say, he just doesn't like them, but also because he doesn't want to alienate Europe. So let's look at Europe. Can you drill down on some of the key drivers that are influencing how European countries are now dealing with Assad post the 7th of October? Well, there's a few things going on in Europe. One is the refugee issue which is fast becoming perhaps the number one issue. And as you know, refugees from Syria are continuing to stream to Europe. And most of these refugees actually are coming from regime areas. And so many people in Europe believe that there should be some form of engagement with the Assad government to make life more tolerable for Syrians so they don't come to Europe. That's the first calculation. The problem, of course, is that in order to justify that engagement, you need certain incidents. The earthquake was one, and now the Gaza war is another one. Assad, as you say, is, is very good at capitalizing on these opportunities. So you have the refugee file. You also have regional norm normalization. Many people in Europe are now saying, and you know, European governments, if the Turks can talk to Assad, I mean, they haven't got very far talking with him, but... They are, there is a channel of communication at uh, foreign minister level. The Emiratis have normalized. They, they're sending a, an ambassador. The Saudis, same thing. So if the Arabs and the regional countries, the Jordanians also. So if all these regional countries are normalizing, that's a talking to him. Why should we continue to ostracize him and, uh, and stay away from the party? Maybe there's something in it for us. Maybe we should also engage and have some kind of dialogue constructive or otherwise so that's the 
that's the so you have the refugee issue and connected with it the regional normalization and those are putting pressures on European on the current European policy on Syria which is which rests on this three no's the three no's is no normalization no reconstruction and no lifting of sanctions unless there is an irreversible progress on the political front i.e. progress towards a political settlement in line with uh, UN resolution 2254 now that looks that the prospect of that happening as things stand is quite remote hence the pressure from let's say the more pragmatic elements within the european foreign policy establishment of saying well if we can't get the kind of political solution that we all desire then there are sort of lower hanging fruit that we should aim for and that could be stemming uh, refugees and coming to terms with um, what they perceive as Assad's Assad's victory in Syria much as Saudi Arabia UAE and others have done let me let me just go back to the US as one of those outside players you know before 7th of October behind the scenes uh, the Americans were actively considering the withdrawal of its forces from both Syria and Iraq what would be the impact if the US was to pull its troops out of Syria well the immediate impact would be the the implosion of the Syrian democratic forces which is only kept i mean the only reason that the SDF exists is because of the, the US has boots on the ground the moment the united states gives a date of its withdrawal or signals that it is definitely withdrawing the SDF would will, will, will collapse um it would collapse along ethnic lines there are many arab elements within SDF perhaps 50% they will essentially defect they won't continue with the SDF secondly there's would be greater opportunity for islamic state to make inroads especially in arab majority areas in Deir ez-Zor uh, its former strongholds it still has sleeper cells still has people who are associated with it and it will be easier for them to make a comeback but perhaps on a sort of geopolitical level the most important result of us withdrawal would be the expansion of iranian power because currently uh, the presence of us forces east of the euphrates river acts as a major hurdle to uh, the expansion of iranian power in the region specifically connecting iraq and syria together in a in a secure way i mean iran does have a, a land route from iraq to syria but it's pretty pre- precarious this is in the border crossing in bukamal which always gets targeted by israel and us air force i mean almost on a uh every 2 or 3 days there's a, a, a targeted airstrikes on Iranian convoys coming in from Iraq to Syria. Now should the US withdraw, then there will be no more hurdle to uh, Iran linking Iraq, which is already under strong Iranian influence, and Syria also under strong Iranian influence. And so Iran's position in the region will be uh, greatly enhanced. That will be the main outcome of a US withdrawal. Mm, yeah, one wonders if the uh... policymakers in the Pentagon and and in the White House are realizing the implications 
of, of a withdrawal. But but just finally, Malik, if we project, I don't know, five years from now, what sort of Syria do you see emerging? Will it be stable, stable, secure, insecure, balkanized, united? What what do you think the the likely trajectory of this frozen war is likely to be? Well, as things stand, as I will say, Syria is no longer a political term. It's now a, a geographic term. Because when you refer to Syria, you could be referring to any one of three regions within Syria that are controlled by different uh, external actors. I think that phenomenon, which is the, the de facto division of Syria leading to some kind of partition, that's likely to continue well into the uh, medium term. Because I don't think that Turkey, uh, at least for the next five or so years, I don't think Turkey will withdraw from Syria in the way that many people believe it will. The Turkish game in Syria is much deeper than what people in the West imagine. Russia, of course, has a relatively low-cost presence in the eastern Mediterranean, thanks to its uh, bases in, 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 in along the coast, Syrian coast. So it's not leaving anytime soon. And of course, perhaps the country with the deepest game in Syria is Iran, which has been able to penetrate Syri Syrian society at, at really extraordinary levels. And Iran isn't leaving Syria either. The only country that maybe is wavering or might leave, which will change the way the, the, the composition of Syria, the power structure, is the United States. I'm skeptical the United States will withdraw from Syria. I think the geopolitics of it will, you know, regardless of who who's US president this time next year, the geopolitics will impose a certain reality on decision makers in Washington. And I don't see the United States abandoning Syria in the way that people think it can without serious loss of face and more importantly, having an impact on US allies in the region, principally Israel. So I see Syria almost sleepwalking into de facto partition. I, I, I just don't see Syria surviving as a unified, centralized political entity. And all of the sacrifices that the people of Syria made in attempting to remove the dictator, what, will have come for naught? Well, not exactly. Um, <clears throat> you can say that they've gravely weakened the dictator to an extent that he can no longer claim to be the, the ruler of, of all of geographic Syria, or what used to be termed you know, political Syria pre-2011. I mean, even as recently as the summer of last year, you have the province of Sweda, it's the Druze-majority province, rose up against Assad, which is extraordinary because this is a minority group and it was assumed that it will continue to be loyal to, to the regime. But in fact, demonstrations have been happening almost on a daily basis there against the regime. So it's an evolving um, dynamic and I, I just don't see how the regime can restore its writ in the way that it did pre-2011. I think that's an unrealistic prospect. So the regime has been diminished. Assad has been diminished. He's still there, of course. And it has to be said that big reason why he's still there 
is connected to to Israel and Israel's security. And this is what the Gaza war has demonstrated. It serves Israel's purposes to have Assad remain in power. A sobering thought on which to end, uh, Malik. I thank you very much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Siri in Transition's Malik Alabda. Siri in Transition untangles the Syrian story in language that is straightforward, objective, and thoughtful. You can find out more by going to syriaintransition.com. I recommend it highly. You'll have noticed that we bring you the podcast with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. If you'd like to support our independent voice, head to our website at arabdigest.org. We can find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, commentators, and writers, contributors like Malik. Check us out on arabdigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And search our library of over 200 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. Our podcast guests provide unique insights, insights you simply will not find anywhere else. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening, from independent sources.